Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is uh, someone who's been a guest on the show before. His, his name is Martin Gurry. He's a media analyst, uh, the author of the very important book, The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium. He spent much of his career examining the relationship between politics and global media as a CIA analyst, and he continues to do so now as a writer and visiting research fellow at the Mercatus Center. Uh, we published many of his essays in City Journal, and his writing has appeared in other outlets as, as well, including uh, the New York Post, First Things, um, and he maintains a blog called The Fifth Wave. Today, though, we're going to discuss his most recent essay for us, which was called The New Censorship. It appears in our summer issue and details the government's increasing efforts to control digital speech. So, Martin, thanks uh, for joining us. Great to have you on again. Happy to be here. Uh, so this essay, The New Censorship, very important piece. If our readers uh, haven't gotten to it yet, they, they should. It opens with a scene uh, from earlier this year, a hearing of the House Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. Two prominent journalists, Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, who's written for us, uh, testified before the committee on what Schellenberger described as the censorship industrial complex, uh, in which federal entities work closely with digital platforms to control and police online speech. Taibbi and Schellenberger uh, had been given, famously, access to internal documents known as the Twitter files. What did these documents reveal about federal agencies' involvement in Twitter's pre-Elon Musk content moderation? Well, it's really kind of fascinating because I'm pretty sure, I know both of those guys pretty pretty well, and I'm pretty sure the two of them went in there thinking that they were going to uncover a lot of internal bias uh, in the in the big digital platforms like Facebook and Twitter, uh, favoring obviously the the uh, progressive side and and uh, opposed to uh, particularly Trumpism, but conservatism and and uh, Republicans in general. What they actually found was this amazingly elaborate, multi-agency, White House directed system of censorship I mean there's no other word for it of basically bullying the, um, the, 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 the social media platforms into um, canceling millions of posts, silencing an untold number of uh, American citizens without any previous debate discussion, enabling legislature all sort of in semi-secret it wasn't really super secret but nobody said we're doing this. Uh, starting maybe uh, shortly after the uh, 2016 election, but really attaining maturity uh, with the election of, of Joe Biden, who is a very, very strong practitioner uh, in the censorship. And we saw a great number of people who had worked in intelligence uh, for the federal government moving over to start working for the social media platforms, right? So it create this this uh, this kind of ongoing communication between people who are in and out of government, intelligence and law enforcement, which is in, you know I come from CIA and 
you know, the um, the charisma of CIA doesn't work for me because I, I I know it as a big bureaucracy, but um, but the FBI, which is a law enforcement uh, agency for Americans, the CIA doesn't have any uh, writ to to um, uh, investigate Americans except in very special circumstances. Uh, the personnel from from FBI and Twitter. Uh, just flitted back and forth, back and forth. And when you look at some of the people who were involved in, for example, deplatforming um, Trump, even though uh, the Twitter executives themselves with their um, uh, terms of service couldn't find a reason for doing it, uh, the, the, the strongest advocates were the former government people, the former FBI. You know, Americans as you discuss in your piece, have traditionally understood the Constitution's First Amendment, which protects freedom of speech and the press as, as a defense of individual expression. This view was Jeffersonian in spirit in that it regarded the power of government as the primary threat to liberty. Recently, though, the establishment progressive left has really embraced a kind of reversal of this ideal so that now society is seen as the primary danger to American governance. Uh, I wonder if you could trace the origins of this, this new understanding of speech in our society, and is it really compatible with democracy as it has been traditionally understood in America? It's a, I mean, I, I am not a young person, Brian. I have lived through um, the free speech movement in Berkeley, and uh, the idea that left progressivism is an extreme version of uh, individualism that must be protected against institutions. And this is a complete reversal of that. It basically um, suggests pretty explicitly that the vast majority of the public are lambs that can be led to the slaughter by these wolves. And of course, the head wolf is Donald Trump, but Elon Musk is not too far behind. These are people who by basically telling persuasive lies can bamboozle millions into acting against their own interests. And that the role of government, therefore, is to intervene in the conversation so these people are not bombarded by lies. Um, as you say, the Jeffersonian idea, that is the one that I grew up with, uh, is that the government is the thing we need to fear. And these people, I have to say, <laughs> are making indirectly a very good case for that. Now, uh, also involved in this process of um, you know, increasing censorship and control of platform speech, digital speech, you know, which originally were, were viewed as these kind of uh, uh, mechanisms for near limitless expression. Uh, but, but another fundamental role, and, and this is in its own way disturbing, is that the social media start relying on the advice of various non-governmental organizations to justify the censorship. So I, I wonder how the NGOs got involved here um, to start policing speech. Honestly, I think it all goes back to 2016 and to Donald Trump and, and the elites who had managed this country, who thought of themselves as being not only wonderful in and of themselves, but beloved of the public, suddenly realized that they were not. They were being held in contempt. and. What's the explanation? Well, it couldn't be that they were contemptible. The explanation was these people were being lied to. And a whole host of organizations uh, arose around the principle that 
disinformation is is the poison that is destroying what they call our democracy. I love that term; it's very possessive, right? Our democracy is ours, uh, and uh, and so they they uh, fund these groups, the um, you know, from the Atlantic Council to uh, um, there are all kinds of names, uh, and, and there are these people who pose as experts uh, that tell you, oh, yes, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, uh, my favorite one is Rene de Resta, uh, who, who says disinformation is one of the existential threats of our time. And so we have to do something about it. It would be irresponsible not to. So this is choir, this chorus, this, this Greek chorus of, of uh, panic. We have to do something. We have to do something. And we are experts. We're almost scientists in this field. So you have to listen to us. You don't understand. The Russians are manipulating us. People who, who are um, against uh, you taking the right medications for COVID are manipulating you. Um, and we, to save you from harm, need to intervene. Uh, and, and, the, uh, and I have to say that the media, the press, is right there. They are part of that chorus. They, instead of doing what the media used to do, which is... Um, so point point the finger at uh, abuse of power, which is what uh, Jim Jordan's committee, with his terrible name, weaponization of government, what they really mean is abuse of power by the government. The media is completely on the side of, no, 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 the government needs to intervene. And, and one last thing is when you look at the polls, a distressing number of Americans agree. Especially younger ones. Yeah, you know, last year, and you, you tell us... Um, a remarkable story in, in your essay, the Biden administration established what was called the Disinformation Governance Board. And this uh, basically was, was kind of centralizing the government's attempts to shape online narrative. The, uh, the Biden administration wound up dissolving this board after only four months. Uh, why did it uh, fail so quickly? And, and maybe just recount that story briefly. Yeah, that's that's a funny one. That's a, that's that's a fun story. Um, what what it tells you, I think, this idea that they were gonna first of all, it was gonna be in in the Homeland uh, Defense Agency, right? So that tells you what they think. It's which is an idea that they're defending their country against these attacks, um, both internal, domestic, and foreign, because they had given up on pretending that it was just the Russians and they had domestic. Uh, anti-democratic threats that they were looking at, and this, after much thought, that maybe amongst amongst uh, the NGOs who we were talking about earlier, there was a lot of debate: should this be centralized or, this, or should this be dispersed? Um, and the NGOs, that they always do, came down on heavily centralized and whole of government effort is what the Rene Duresta said. And after a while, the Biden people decided to go along with that and came up with that 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 governance board. They appointed this woman, Nina Jankowitz, who was in, in part responsible for the thing collapsing because um, she is, first of all, she was a heavy, heavy, two-fisted defender of the fact that the uh, Hunter um, Biden's laptop was a Russian hack. So it's, it's remarkable that a person who was so completely wrong about that is now being made the head of a disinformation board. Um, and secondly, if you look at her up in line, she is, you know, she's online saying that she is the, the Mary Poppins of this information, singing basically what you might call in an older era, 
indecent songs about herself, about who she needs to be with to get ahead in life. I mean, she was just a, a crazy person. And but I think the main the main reason that 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 board failed is that inside that establishment left, it is a self-evident good to have control of this information. And no matter what kind of government intrusion you need, it's the outcome. It's the outcome that matters. And then the outcome is you're you're stopping lies, right? And they live in this bubble where it is very important for them politically to have that control. I mean, it's all one-sided. Uh, it it, it uh, aimed at conservatives and Republicans, or somewhat less so at at maverick lefties uh, and Democrats like Robert F. Kennedy. Um, so they have come to the habit of basically believing that everything that's good for them politically is good for our democracy. And they live in this bubble. And it never occurred to them that if they said to the American public, we're going to have this disinformation governors. It's going to, it's going to govern your information that a lot of Americans are going to go, what What are you talking about? And I think the, the response by the public and by um, the, the opposition and, and uh, many, many outlets uh, caught them by surprise. To them, it's just a self-evident good. Now we have the 2024 presidential election looming, and you write in the essay, Republicans are caught in a circular dilemma. They need the presidency to be heard above the censorship, yet the censorship radically diminishes their chances of getting to the White House. On the other hand, uh, Elon Musk's acquisition and opening up of Twitter puts at least one obstacle in the way of progressives' ability to control online speech. So how might each party uh, look at uh, the challenges of social media uh, going forward into this campaign year, um, next year and a half, and how will the election's outcome affect the future of digital speech? Yeah, well, I think the outcome is going to be massively uh, decisive. I think uh, if the public can look at this censorship apparatus that has been erected in Washington, and by the way, has been temporarily halted by by a judge, um, in the end, this is not going to be, I don't think, a, a legal battle. It's going to be a political battle. And if they can look on that and say, no, we, we're good with that, that's what we got for the next generation. Okay. Um, I, I think the Republicans are, it's a question beyond the censorship. The progressive left owns all the, the culture, owns the culture wholesale, right? So it's not like the Republicans are not allowed to say things. It's not like conservatives or libertarians are not allowed to say things. Well, of course they are. But they're kept in a ghetto. They're kept in a, in a ghetto where they, they talk to themselves. So the left can talk to everybody. They got the New York Times. They got the, the TV networks. Um, but the, the, the Republicans can talk only to themselves. So I think starting towards 2024, even with Elon Musk, who is a volatile substance anyway, um, I, I, I think the, the Democrats have things to worry about, but they have most of the chips. Well, we will see. Uh, it's a very, very important uh, topic, obviously, because it goes to the heart of our democracy. Uh, you have done a lot to uh, illumine these uh, questions in your, your writing, Martin, so I wanted to thank you very much for that. Don't forget to check out Martin Gurry's work on the City Journal website. That's www.city-journal.org. You'll find this essay, The New Censorship, and his other writings there, um, and we'll link to his author page in the description. You can also find Martin on Twitter, at M. Gurry. 
You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. If you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a nice rating on iTunes. Martin Gurry, thanks. Always great to talk. Yeah, loved it. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.